last chapter of the book of James, and uh, I believe we'll have one or two more sermons left in James, and then we'll be heading back towards Matthew. James chapter 5, and then we're going to do verses 1 through 6, okay? All right, so here God's word says this. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. This ends the reading of God's holy and timely word. You guys can take a seat, and as you do, I'm going to pray one more time for us. Father, we thank you for your word, um, and even as we come to a, a hard um, rebuke, a hard passage, God, pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and uh, really just the grace to really engage and really apply it rightly to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I want to open up our look at James chapter 5 um, by uh, just opening illustration of a movie um, called The Dark Knight Rises. It's a part of the Batman series and um, came out some, you know, maybe like a few years ago. But in, in the Batman series or the comics, if you're familiar with them, there is this city, Gotham. And Gotham is kind of like the New York City kind of of America in some ways. It's a city that is wrecked and in shambles by so much of the crime and the poverty and the injustice of the city going on there. And one of the particular things that seems to be going on in this city is the difference between the rich and the poor. And so there's this income inequality in some ways. And so the rich are, are kind of living this opulent lifestyle and then the poor are struggling and have these things against the rich. Well, this particular movie, The Dark Knight Rises, begins with introducing a character um, who is the Catwoman. She works for this villain called Bane. And Bane is a part of the League of Shadows, which is this organization that tries to fight for justice, although it be in very unorthodox ways. It tries to fight for justice, and one of the places in which this is happening is the city of Gotham. Well, she steals something from um, Bruce Wayne, who is Batman, and Batman, he catches up with her at a charity ball, and he cuts in to dance with her, and in their conversation, Catwoman, she says something very uh, interesting. She gives kind of a, a very stern rebuke and a warning to Batman or Bruce Wayne in this scenario. She says this, There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. You and your friends better batten down the hatches because when it hits, you're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. And as I thought about James 5, I thought about this Scene because justice is a central theme of this movie. How it is carried out and accomplished is a central theme. And interestingly, you have two different parties that are fighting for justice in very, very different ways, but nonetheless, the cry for and the fight for justice is central 
in this film. And in very similar ways, we're going to see how the cry and fight for justice is going to be here in James 5 today, and we're going to see God's heart for justice. And so I think there's a main point here, or a big idea, that we're going to begin with, and it's this, because God, because our God is perfectly just, he will not let the unbelieving rich go unpunished, or let his children fall into despair. And so there are two things going on here. He will not let the unbelieving rich go unpunished, but he will also not let his believers, his followers, his Christians, his sons and daughters fall into despair. And so we're going to look at this in our passage. And James first, he gives the rich kind of this very clear and sobering rebuke. It's, it's tough. But he gives, them, and he gives them this clear rebuke and then goes on to kind of give them some instructions of what to do and why they have this rebuke. And so let's look at the rebuke from verse 1. And this is the call to action to the unbelieving rich. Remember, James says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And so James, what he does is he's turning our attention to a specific people. And a specific group, the unbelieving rich and their future fate. And I say unbelieving, meaning that they are probably not Christians. They are not those that have followed Jesus, those who have been washed by Jesus' blood, or trying to live a life that's honoring to God. But I think, and I think it's the best way to interpret that, that these are unbelieving or non-Christian um, wealthy people that James is talking about here. But also it's important for us to remember, as we start, there is nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. So being a Christian or not, it doesn't matter if you're wealthy. More of the question in the Bible is, how do we use that wealth? How do we view that wealth? What do we do with the money that God has entrusted us with? And so we don't want to start off this sermon by saying, all rich people are bad. No, that's not true. There are many uh, Christian businessmen and businesswomen who have uh, made lots and lots of money and done great things with that money. And thank God for them. But today as we talk about these rich folks, we're talking more about those that are like the rich young ruler that we talked about in the beginning of our, our preparation for worship. Those whom God is, or their God is money. The thing in which they serve and fight for and want more than anything else is money. They will do anything to get more and more and more of that money. Even if it means stepping over or stepping on other people to get that money. That's the kind of people, that's the group that we're talking about here as we begin in this passage. So we know who's who's James talking about, but also the question is, what are they called to do? What is James telling them to do? And there are really only two actions here in the whole passage as far as what James or God is calling them to do. And it is to weep and to howl or wail, as the NIV says. This first word, weep, one commentator, he says that the way James uses this word carries a certain note of urgency or a sense of urgency. This has to happen. Where this is urgent, something is happening in my life and I must respond. The second one, to wail, the same commentator says that this word is used for an expression of violent grief. 
violent grief. And so what we have here is a very sobering and serious picture. Urgent crying and wailing as an expression of violent grief. This is what you would expect of a mom who maybe just lost her child in a drunk driving accident. Or maybe uh, um, to, uh, lost their child to an overdose on drugs. Or maybe a husband who unexpectedly lost his family in a car accident. But why does James use this for the unbelieving rich? That was my question. I'm, I'm kind of like, well, I know that this is an injustice. And we looked at some of these injustices and we will do that. But why? Is it, is it kind of the, does the punishment fit the crime? Well, for James and for God, ultimately, the answer is yes. They should weep and howl. And, the, and James goes on to tell us why. And it says this, for the miseries that are coming upon you. The miseries that are coming upon you. See, James, he doesn't give any wiggle room as if these things are uncertain. These things will happen. For the unbelieving rich. He reminds them that these things are going to happen. There is a certain future in which these miseries are going to come. And this is the reason why the unbelieving rich should weep and should wail. Listen to a quote from one of the commentators. It says this, The rich will lose everything they have devoted themselves to and everything they have relied upon. Theirs will be the despair of people who discover their dreams and treasures destroyed forever. What a fate. Could you imagine maybe the the Wall Street giants, some of them who have unjustly made their riches on the backs of the poor, or maybe the worldwide corporation executives who have benefited at the expense of thousands of underpaid, overworked day laborers in awful conditions, in sweatshops around the world, or maybe the drug lord who lives extravagantly off the profits of the poor and the desperate folks who buy their drugs just to get away from the earthly misery that they experience. Could you imagine them hearing about their impending judgment, stopping to weep and to wail on something like the middle of Wall Street or Silicon Valley or at the steps of their mansion in the Caribbean. Could you imagine that picture? This is not something that is figurative. It's not hypothetical. This is what James and what ultimately God is calling them to do because of what will come. Now before you or I get high and mighty saying, well, he's not talking to me because I'm not rich. Well, that may be. And that may be true that you are not rich and not wealthy, but that same judgment is supposed to be ours if it were not for what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Remember, as it said, the, the, the ground before the cross is level. It's level. We all deserve that. And so our hearts should break as we hear these words. But why does God give such a harsh indictment to the rich? What is, what is it in particular that they have done to deserve this fate? That's what James turns to next as he talks about the crimes of the unbelieving rich. The crimes of the unbelieving rich. Our second point today. In verses 2 and through 6, James speaks of these particular crimes or actions or injustices that they've done. 
One of the commentators I really enjoyed or benefited from how he talked about this and organized it. He says, those crimes are four in number. One, hoarded wealth, verses two and three. Two, unpaid wages, verses four. Three, luxury and self-indulgence, verse five. And the, uh, four, the murder of innocent men, in verse six. And I think it's a helpful way to break that down. And so we're going to look at those each in a little bit of detail. First one, the hoarding of wealth, verses 2 and 3. This shows basically that they are rich, right? That they have gold and they have silver and they have nice clothes and garments because we talk, the verses are talking about these things being what? Corroded or eaten by moths. And interestingly, the wealth in which has been built up for the rich people, it's not doing what they thought it would do. It's not doing what they wanted it to do when they first sought out to go and to get it. You know, when they were you know, first trying to make their money, I'm sure they weren't thinking about their wealth and their riches being taken away from them or being rotten or being eaten up by moths. And yet this is what happens. Because James, what he says is they, were, they are rotting, they are being corroded, they are being eaten by moths. That's what's happening to their riches. And then he goes back to this idea of judgment in verse 3 saying, And their corrosion, the riches, will be evidence against you and eat, will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in these last days. And I hear this and read about this and it seems like a courtroom. The imagery is almost like a courtroom. Evidence is being stacked against the defendant or the one that's on trial. The evidence is what? Their corroded wealth being brought before them as something against them, which can and will be used against them in a court of law. Their wealth that they have built up, the treasures that they have sacrificed for are being put here as evidence one against them. And not only that, but God goes on to give a powerful word picture here. He talks about their flesh being eaten like fire. If you ever made a fire, I enjoy playing with fire like a lot of boys do. As a kid, I enjoyed doing that. But there are a few essential things that you need. One of the things that you need is wood. You need something to burn, right? And what does fire do to that wood? It burns it up. Right? And it burns it up into ashes. That is almost the picture going on here. One commentator says this, Like fire is a graphic way of declaring that their greed will result in their own destruction. As if the corrosion that ate their riches will actually eat their very flesh. This is a serious and a sobering picture here for the rich, the unbelieving rich. And the end is near for them, the text assumes. And it's not pretty. And yet justice will be served. The second one is this, withholding pay. And so James now turns to the second one in which we have these landowners who are fraudulently holding back pay from the laborers who actually earn that. They kept back those paychecks for themselves. And I think principally, the sin that's being talked about here is withholding a paycheck, whether it's in full or it's in part. But also, I remember something that my previous pastor said. He talked about this idea of giving them a fair wage versus giving them a wage in which the market will bear. 
Meaning the difference there is that what is the lowest that I can pay this person and get away with it? I'm not thinking about a fair wage. I'm thinking about the lowest that I can pay them and get away with it. Because why? That makes me more money. The less I have to pay them, the more I can have. And so I think that's, that principally is also in play here. And so what we have is a, a landowner that's holding back the paychecks of people who worked in the fields for hours upon hours upon hours. And then just like before, James returns to the judgment that they will receive because of their actions. And they say that these things are crying out against you and the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And I think, again, we're going back to this courtroom imagery. These stolen money, these paychecks that have been withheld are the evidence against the unbelieving rich. Particularly here, the landholders, the people that are running the businesses. These stolen paychecks are crying out against them. And they are saying guilty. Guilty. These paychecks are crying out against them saying, guilty are you. For you did not give them to the one who deserved this. You did not give the worker his pay. And not only are the wages crying out, but the laborers who have been cheated are crying out. And to whom are they crying out to, the text says? The Lord. They're crying out to the Lord. And God has heard their cry and he will answer them. He will act on their behalf. He will carry out justice on their behalf. And I think it's important for us to remember in our lives that our God is not distant. He is not some distant God, some foreign God who sits high and holy and away and doesn't care about his people. But he cares about his people. He hears their cries and he comes to their help. As we've talked about plenty of times and sung about in our service today, he comes to the help of his people who are struggling in the midst of trials. He moves towards them and not far away. Praise God for that. The title here for God is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts or the Lord, I think, of armies as it, as it also is translated. And commentators point out here that saying the God who hears the cries of his suffering people is the Lord Almighty and he will vindicate them in due time. And again, James is referring to God's awesome power and authority to judge sin. And so this is a picture of God being great, God being almighty, God being the man, and he will be the righteous judge that will vindicate his people as we just heard. That is our God. That is our God. And I think we should take encouragement in that this morning. Well, the third one is this, uh, the third crime. A life of luxury focused on self. A life of luxury focused on self. See, the text says here, it's almost like the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. The lifestyle of luxury and opulence without struggle, it seems, Without stress, people waiting on you hand and foot. It says luxury and self-indulgence. And yet this has not gone unnoticed by the Lord. They have replaced God with themselves and with their own pleasure. 
Again, just like the rich young ruler, their God has been their money. And God has realized that. And he is warning them, verse 5, You have fattened your, your hearts in a day of slaughter. The Lord is giving the rich, the unbelieving rich, nowhere to hide. There is nowhere they can go to hide from God's judgment. The idea of God's judgment and God's justice are looming in the future. They are seeing that on the horizon coming. Verse 1, it says, the miseries they will face. Verse 3, it says, the last days, which this idea in the scriptures is when the judgment of the Lord comes to all. And now in verse 5, the day of slaughter. And I think it's referring to the riches slaughter. The unbelieving riches slaughter. And what's going on? The text says they are fattening their hearts. Listen to this quote. It says, On the very day when judgment was due to come, they were fattening themselves like cattle completely unaware of their impending destruction. So like cows in a field that are eating one day and eating and eating and eating, they have no idea that it's slaughter day. They're getting fat. They're, they're, they're eating their stuff. They're, they just keep going with what they were doing. Fat off this self-indulgence and luxury at the expense of others and off of the money and what it could buy. And yet what is happening? Slaughtering day is coming. It's a warning. It's an indictment. The fourth crime is this, the murdering of innocent or righteous men. James points this out, verse 6, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so now we, we have seen a progression in which the rich have hoarded their wealth. They've taken it up for themselves and said, this is for me. I'm not sharing it with anybody else. But I've also stolen the paychecks of other people, partly how I got rich. And then I, what I've done with that, I've lived a life of luxury. Whatever I want, I go and get. I go for the most expensive stuff. When I go to a restaurant, I get the top shelf. That's what I get. And yet, what have they also done? They have murdered the righteous person. And guess what? The righteous person wasn't even looking for a fight. Wasn't even saying, I'm going to fight you. Or I'm going to oppose you, as the text says. Now, this murdering of the righteous person may have not been done directly by the rich, as one commentator pointed out, but it also could be done indirectly. How so? Well, maybe via a corrupt legal system in which is controlled by the rich, in which they kind of get their dirty work done. They get their dirty work done through a controlling, a corrupt system. And this commentator, he kind of seems to think that the, the people that are in view here are mainly the poor, if not totally. I don't know if that's uh, the only ones being spoken of here, and yet probably the, the poor are at least some of the number of the people that are being murdered. But the main point is, is that the unbelieving rich are murdering the righteous and innocent person. They've taken it to an extreme to say, I don't even care if I take your life. I don't even care if I take your life. If you get in my way of me and my money, I will take your life. You know, at first it seems like James kind of has another downer passage. Why so serious, James? Why so heavy? What are we to think about this and to do with this? 
I mean, that's an honest question as you hear this. And yet that's when I want to spend the last few moments that we have together looking at some of the application. And so first I want to ask the question, of what does it mean for you and me, for believers, for Christians? How are we to receive a passage like this? And I think first there is an implicit warning not to pursue the love of money or of wealth. There's a warning here. We already said in the beginning, it's not wrong to be rich as a Christian, but there is a warning not to make that your God, not to make that your pursuit in which you live and you do everything possible to be rich, only to realize those riches didn't, didn't give what they promised. We need to guard our hearts, guard our lives, so that we may not be those who pursue the love of money and riches. And it, guys, it can be in very, very subtle ways. You may not be rich, and you may never be rich, but that desire can still lurk in you and still can do damage inside of you and me. The second thing I think for us is that I think it helps us to learn about God's heart for justice. Very clearly in this passage, God's heart for justice and that justice will be served is all throughout this text. It is an encouragement to suffering Christians in a fallen world, in an unjust world. Maybe even today some of those who would be in here would be victims of such injustice. Or hearing this today, or will hear this. To be honest, when I was reading and studying this passage, I kind of wondered, should I be sad about this? Or should I be glad? Kind of like in your face. Or should I kind of feel guilty about being excited or amped that God is bringing his justice? But then I started thinking about this. I started thinking about anyone who has known significant injustice. Think about that for a minute. Think about a group of people or a person that has experienced great, I mean deep injustice. Maybe it's the Jews Maybe it's the African-American slaves, the American Indians, African-Americans during the civil rights era, whatever it would be. Think about that. What do you think a passage like this does for them? Exactly, I think, what we just said. Encourages, comforts. It brings hope and relief. Not, not a, I'm going to get my revenge. No, not that. But that vengeance is the Lord's. That God will get his. And that I can trust him that he will carry out justice on my behalf. I may have been taken advantage of. I may have been the victim of injustice. And yet I know that my God will carry out his injustice. Or sorry, his justice. If not here, now, when he comes back, he will. He will. Even if it means the wicked's destruction. See, God's heart for justice is emanating from this passage, from this scathing rebuke of the unbelieving rich. And James, all throughout his book, has reminded us that God alone is what? He is the lawgiver. He is the judge. He is the one who is able to save and to destroy. He is the one who defines and enforces justice. It is his heart. It is our Father's heart. That justice will be carried out. And brothers and sisters, I think we should take heart in this this morning. And be comforted by this. And wait patiently and expectantly for God's ultimate justice to be served when he comes back and makes all things right. 
Well, what about the application for the unbelieving rich? What about that? Well, I can't say that there's great news to start with. James, he clearly calls the unbelieving rich to weep and to wail for the coming judgment that will await you. That's what James said. That's what God said. I didn't say that. But he gives them a clear instruction. Weep and wail for the coming judgment. You almost think if any one of us or any one of the unbelieving rich could actually see that, could see a, like a movie of that, how it's going to happen, we would probably respond in that way, or the unbelieving rich would probably respond in that way, weeping and wailing. And yet a lot of times what they do is just shrug it off. That's ah, not going to happen. Or I'm good. I'll, I'll, I'll be protected by my money and my wealth, ignoring what happens. But maybe there are some of the unbelieving rich who ask, is there any hope for a person like me? Is there any hope for a person like me? Is this a, is this a done deal etched in stone? Well, I think here it's, we need to be thankful for the unity of Scripture, that God has given us not just one book, but a whole Bible. A whole Bible. And it has a message of hope throughout the whole thing. Acts 17, 30 and 31 says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is hope for this person. Hope in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ Hope that if that person would come to repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus, that they will be likewise forgiven of their sin, forgiven of the injustices that they have done to others. And so I think the other application is this, that they would humble themselves, that they would run to him, and they would find mercy upon God, that God would find mercy on them. See, we need to be reminded just as much as the unbelieving rich that he has carried out justice for the crimes of people like you and like me on his son. He has carried out justice for the things that you and I have done. We may have not carried out the injustices of the rich, but we have our sin. We got our struggles like we talked about early in the service where we have to confess to the Lord and say, look, we messed up. We sinned. We have gone opposite of your ways. And thank you for taking out that justice, not on me, but on Jesus. Jesus took that punishment for our crimes. And the same can happen for the unbelieving rich. And so what you see here is we've had a passage in which we've talked about the unbelieving rich and the the crimes in which they have carried out. And we have seen God's heart for justice That he will carry out justice in his timing and in his ways. And that we need to be encouraged and not falling into despair. So that when we face that injustice or when a family member or a friend or someone else that we know faces that, that we can encourage them that God will do it. God is just. He will carry out righteous judgment. Be encouraged. Don't fall into despair. Keep your eyes fixed on him and trusting in him in your day and time of need. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. God, it is a, a living and an active word that we need. We need to come to church regularly, Lord, to be with your people. Yes, we need to come to sing praises to you, but also we need to come to hear your word, to hear your word preached and explained and applied to our lives because your word guides our very life. We need it. It helps us to grow and to be strengthened as Christians. And that means the, those messages that are very encouraging and very uplifting and also those messages that are hard, that are a message of tough love, that are a message of rebuke and correction like James gave us this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We pray for our own hearts that you would guard us from the love of money and the love of riches. Guard us from making them our God. God, we pray that you would please also help us to trust you, that you will carry out your judgment and your justice and your timing, God. We pray for judgment uh, or for your justice to, to come and to come swiftly, Lord, where there is injustice. And God, we pray also for the unbelieving rich, Lord, that they would heed this warning, God, that they would repent of their sins and put their faith in you, Lord, and walk with you in a way that honors you, God. And they would begin to learn to use their money in a way in which builds your kingdom and not theirs. And they'd be good stewards of that which they have been given. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your love. We pray that you would help us now as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Peter Eck, Assistant Pastor at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.